Mark chapter 4, and we're going to read 35 to 41. And of course, this is Christ calms the storm. Christ calms the storm after a day of teaching on the shore. And it was, uh, Christ would often literally sit in a boat facing the people on the shore because of the great crowds. And then after he's done, they go to the other side. But let's read this. This is uh, an amazing miracle. And it's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. <clears throat> on the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? <clears throat> and they feared exceedingly, and said to one another, Who can this be, that even the wind and the sea obey him? A passage of scripture that really helps us understand more about Jesus of Nazareth, as well as his weak disciples, and it's amazing. Uh, you read the Gospels very carefully, and you see they were weak, and their faith was weak. And of course, after the resurrection, that will change radically. But in the Gospels, they had a weak faith, and Christ had to train them. We have here in Mark 4, 35-41, has an account of Jesus commanding and thus calming the great storm and waves in the Sea of Galilee. As our Lord and the disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, after a long session of Christ teaching a great multitude, multitude of people along the shore, a sudden storm comes up on the, on the lake, great winds, <coughs> that cause large waves, they're swamping the boat, and this caused the disciples to panic. In response, Jesus will order the elements of creation and calm this storm. And it is the circumstances and interaction between the Savior and the Apostles that make the story so interesting, edifying, and dramatic. It's really totally amazing. Now, before we look at the details of the story, there are some interesting matters to consider. First, this account is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, with only minor variations. The account in Mark comes from largely from Peter, an eyewitness, and is a bit more vivid in its details. Mark notes that Jesus was already in the boat when he departed, when they departed. Jesus taught from a boat as a method of crowd control. And Mark gives us the detail about that Jesus was always in the stern, uh, was, a, <coughs> was asleep in the stern on a pillow. Matthew and Mark tell us that Christ rebuked the wind and the raging sea, whereas Mark tells us that uh, the specific command to the waves, peace be still. 
and it's literally be quiet. <laughs> Mark tells us a specific command, peace be still. Mark goes into more detail about their lack of faith with Jesus asking two questions, not simply one. Why are you so fearful? And how is it that you have no faith? Second, we should profit by knowing some things about the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is in the valley 600, listen to this, 685 feet below sea level. And I think the deepest place on planet Earth is the Dead Sea, which is at the very bottom of, very bottom, and the river goes from Galilee to the Dead Sea and then stops. The three major valleys adjoin this lake. It, it is fed from the Jordan River, which is uh, fed by some springs and two smaller streams. To the north is Mount Hermon at 9,000 feet above sea level, and the mountains of Upper Galilee that are around 4,000 feet in elevation that hold snow, and this snow, of course, feeds the Jordan and the other smaller streams. The biblical names of the lake in the Old Testament are the Sea of Chinnereth, or Chinneroth, Numbers 34.11, Joshua 13.27, Joshua 12.3. The word harp comes from this Hebrew word, and if you look at the shape of the lake, it's shaped like a harp, and that's where it gets its name, in the Old Testament anyway. In the intertestinal period, it was called Gennesaret, and under the Roman administration, it was called the Sea of Tiberia. John 6, 1 and 12, 21, 1. In Luke 5, 1, it is called the Lake of Gennesaret, using the intertestinal uh, name the Jews used. And in the Gospels, it is usually called the Sea of Galilee. <coughs> it's named after the region, Matthew 4, 18, 15, 29, uh, Mark 1, 16, 7, 31, John 1, 6, 1. Today, the Jews call it the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Kinneret, and some call it Lake Tiberias. And I was watching a, I watch videos, there's a young couple who goes throughout the Holy Land and talks about events that happen in specific places, and they were, looked like a restaurant or something near the lake, and it was called Kinneret. From the northern tip to the southern is 13 miles long. It's a big lake. 13 miles long. And in the north, where it is wider, it is seven and a half miles wide. So they want to go across somewhere north. My guess would be where it's probably five or six miles wide. But that's, you know, if you're out in the middle of a lake and a storm comes, it's very scary. I was in, <clears throat> if you're familiar with Lake Tahoe, uh, which is a pretty big lake. And we, we, we got caught in a storm as we were crossing the lake. And we were in a speedboat, and it was very scary because the waves are crashing over the sides. Now, we had a pump that you could turn on, and it squirted the water out, but it was pretty scary. <coughs> uh, being in between large hills or small mountains, it is usually a peaceful lake, but when large storms arise, waves can reach 10 feet high, which could easily swamp a small boat. Both Mark and Luke, when speaking of the atmospheric disturbance in the original language, use the word... Uh, Leaplaps, which refers to a whirlwind or a storm that breaks forth in furious wind gusts, or gales, or loud squalls. Matthew calls it a great shaking and a sea quake. 
So it was a sudden, exceptionally violent storm, a howling tempest, and it sounded like uh, the sudden violent thunderstorms that we experience here in the Midwest. And you can go on YouTube, you can find it. I've seen it. Uh, somebody recorded a storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the waves were 10 feet tall. Uh, so it can be ex extremely violent. And these fishing boats were not big, huge fishing boats. Um, so keep that in mind. And it's terrifying uh, if you're out in the middle of a lake and a storm comes. Third, the account gives us one of the few nature miracles in Scripture. <clears throat> Most of Jesus' miracles involve healings or exorcisms. Certainly raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, healing to the deaf, restoring uh, limbs that are shriveled. Are miracles or sovereign power over nature? But they are done on a personal scale, and we can find such miracles among the prophets, such as Elijah or the apostles. But the control of waves and storms is obviously uh, much more rare and impressive. In the Old Testament, there's the parting of the sea and the sun standing still all day long. These are accomplished by God by prayer. Jesus simply orders nature, and it obeys him. He speaks the word, and it obeys. Moses had to pray. <coughs> and also uh, Jonah. Similar situation with Jonah. They're caught in a big, huge storm. And the men are all panicking, begging him to do something, and he prays, and God calms the storm. <clears throat> in the New Testament, Jesus walks on water, he turns water into wine, and he curses the fig tree. This miracle is the most impressive and has the most astonished reaction among the disciples. Now, modernists or liberals, these are people who call themselves Christians, but they're unbelievers. They don't believe in the Word of God. They, they reject Scripture as full of errors and myths, a priori, that is before even the facts are studied. Um, so they're wicked Satanists. They reject it, but they do so because they approach Scripture with atheistic presuppositions and naturalistic presuppositions. Fourth, the setting of this miracle or, or context is one of simply uh, needing to go from point A to point B. After a long day of teaching crowds, along the coast of the sea, Jesus says, let us go to the other side, presumably the east side of the lake. At least four of the apostles were fishermen with years of experience sailing in the Sea of Galilee. The fishing boats used at that time, the common fishing boats, uh, could hold around 12 adults and were propelled by sails, Luke 8.23, and or oars, John 6.19. Generally what people would do is they'd go out fishing, and if the wind was nice, they would use their sail. If the wind died down and they were kind of stuck, they, they had oars just in case, and they would row back to shore using oars. And that's still true today for small sailboats. Well, today, small sailboats have little engines just in case the sails, uh, there's no wind. <clears throat> the boat they were in was on the larger side for a fishing boat, for it had room for all 12 disciples and for Jesus to lie down and take a nap. These boats did not have tall sides like our modern ocean fishing boats and were easily swamped by large waves. <clears throat> when I was young, we went deep sea fishing in the Bay of Monterey, Monterey Bay, on the California coast. And when we left early, at, you know, we left at like five in the morning, and we got out in the bay, and uh, it was real nice. And then in the middle of the day, a storm came, and 
I mean, the swells were 40 feet tall. And this is a big fishing boat, but the swells were literally 40, 50 feet tall. It was, it was pretty scary. And people, everybody was throwing up everywhere. And they rushed back to the, to the coast. <clears throat> Only Mark's account tells us that the other little boats were also on the lake with him probably indicating a better seat to hear the teaching and possibly a group of people that wanted to sail to the other side of the lake to hear more teaching. If B is what is in mind, then the miracle saved many more lives than just the disciples, and the miracle was witnessed by many people, not just the apostles. In Mark 35, Mark, uh, in verse 35, Mark tells us that, quote, they departed for when evening had come. It was very late in the day. The day's teaching had ended. Jesus wanted to go to the other town and to get some rest for the next day. He was exhausted. Imagine teaching all day long. He was exhausted. So he took a nap. As we turn our attention to the response of Christ and the disciples of the great storm, there are a number of important matters to consider. Roman numeral number one, the sleeping Savior. First, the narrative focuses our attention on the Savior. The wind bellows. The waves crash upon the boat. Water is accumulating in the boat. And the boat rocks violently in the churning waves. And there's Jesus, fast asleep, totally calm, laying there with his head on a pillow in the stern of the boat. Totally calm. sleeping soundly and peacefully. Well, we see a few crucial things about Jesus in this verse number one. Our Lord was truly a real man just like us, except without sin. He really was a f fully man. <coughs> Jesus spent the day in the sun preaching to the multitude. He was physically exhausted. In addition, our Savior would frequently pray at night and he had made it to catch up on his sleep. So it's quite clear, if you read the Gospels, he had a body that could hunger and thirst, that could feel pain, and be uncomfortable in the heat of the day, or the cold of the winter. He could grow tired and weary. So after the boat set sail, he laid down to catch some sleep. He knows what it means to be a man, and he knows what it means to suffer as a man. He fully understands our situation in life. He is the only perfect mediator who can minister to his people who have weary bodies and who are tempted, who experience afflictions. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The incarnation and genuine humanity of Christ is necessary for Jesus' saving work. His role as a mediator between God and man and his high priestly ministry. And yes, the, the two most mysterious and difficult doctrines are the Incarnation, two natures, one person, and of course the Trinity. But they're clearly taught in Scripture. I, uh, uh, I was watching a religious program on uh, YouTube, and the commercial, you know, they had these little commercials, they had a, a, a lengthy commercial by Unitarians advocating for Unitarianism, and it was so full of lies uh, I was amazed, both historical lies and, of course, script lies regarding Scripture. Number two, Jesus' behavior. 
in the midst of this great storm and the outward great dangers that attend it, <coughs> reveal not only that our Lord was very tired, but also that he had a great faith in God. Faith and fear are mutually exclusive in the Bible. Although the disciples were thrown into a panic, were greatly afraid, and came to the conclusion that they were all about to die in the waves. Jesus' trust in the Father and his mission was so solid and strong that he had the peace and the rest of faith. He's not worried. He's not afraid. He doesn't panic. Our Lord's reaction is set before us as a contrast to the disciples' reaction. Now, Jesus, of course, is God, and he knows God with the perfect knowledge in his human nature. He understands the Father's sovereign power and loving care better than anyone. The Savior is also God of very God, who has infinite power and sovereignty, even though in his state of humiliation, this was deliberately obscured. And not often exhibited. There's the woman, and she's, she says, if I can only touch him, she says to herself, if I can only touch him, I'll be healed. And she reaches out and touches him, and power flows out of him. And Jesus says, who touched me? His human nature had the anointing of the Holy Spirit beyond measure. <clears throat> For Jesus, there was never a situation out of control or beyond his control. He was arrested, tortured, crucified, only because he permitted it to happen. He could rest peacefully without fear, for he knew that they were safe in God's hands, and he knew that this was a test for the disciples' faith for their own good. Why did Jesus allow the storm to happen? He wants to test the apostles' faith and teach them. It was for their own good. One of the most repeated commands in the Bible to God's people is fear not. Exodus 14, 13, and 20. And of course it's also found in Joshua and other places. Fear reveals a weak faith. Number three. <coughs> Jesus' sleep was for the disciples' own good. He slept to try the apostles' faith, to stir them up to prayer and teach them about his own person. He's giving them a lesson in who he is. It's quite clear. Sometimes in the church is in the midst of a great storm. It may seem as if our Savior is sleeping and is unconcerned with the troubles and afflictions of his people. But our precious Savior does things for our own good and edification. We must understand this. Keep this truth in our mind and trust in him in such times even more. We don't panic. We're not supposed to panic. We're not supposed to doubt. We're not supposed to give up. We're not supposed to go back. But trust and obey. He may appear to sleep at times, but his heart, his love, his care, his high priestly oversight and intercession 
on our behalf, never sleeps. Don't you forget that. The storms of life and the afflictions that are part of being a Christian are used by the Lord to teach us, to mature us, to make us better Christians, to increase our faith. Beloved, take great comfort in the fact that Jesus is a perfect man and the infinite God. We trust in a high priest who understands our pains and sorrows. He is not only an all-powerful Lord over heaven and earth, but also a loving, sympathizing Savior. He is not only the Son of God mighty to save, but the Son of Man able to relate to our own situation in life. We trust Him, and we look to the One who has a loving, sympathizing heart. And when our faith is weak, and our hearts doubt or fear, look to Him. Look to Christ. For He loves you and He cares for you and He is your faithful High Priest. He knows what you need before you even know it yourself. And He knows what you need better than you do. Trust Him and follow Him. What a lesson. He's teaching the Apostles. Roman numeral number two. The disciples' response. The disciples react to the great storm and the crashing waves. How they react stands in stark contrast to the uh, peace and calmness of Christ. Their response is clearly one of great fear. Matthew's account says, Then the disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. That's Matthew 8.25. Luke's account says, Master, Master, we are perishing. Luke 8.24. Mark's account is the most vivid and shocking. It says this. This is 4.38. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? The apostles' question, born out of fear and desperation, is in essence a rebuke of Jesus for allowing them to perish. They are so panic-stricken that they have judged the matter before Jesus has a chance to even speak one word. It is a careless, foolish, disrespectful remark to Christ. We could paraphrase it like this. Are we so unimportant to you that with death about to swallow us in the waters, you can lay there and sleep? In their great fear, they cried out something that no doubt they would later deeply regret. See how weak? And stupid the apostles were. It's one of the great evidences that the Bible's inspired word of God, in perfect from cover to cover. God's presented as perfect. God's presented as wonderful. But God's followers are pre presented as bumbling idiots a lot of the time. Yes, they do great things for God. But they do stupid things. Yet even though their response shows a lack of faith mingled with a lack of careful reverence and respect, it does show some faith, albeit a weak faith. <clears throat> if these experienced fishermen regarded Jesus as nothing more than a teacher who was formerly a carpenter, they wouldn't have turned to him for help. So that little weak faith reached out to Christ. And that's what's so wonderful about Christianity and Christ. We're not saved because of our faith. We're not saved because we have great faith. Our faith can be very weak. But Christ is all-powerful to save, even when our faith is weak. 
even when we act like an idiot. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by Christ. Their faith was weak. It was not yet strong. And they were still learning precisely who Jesus was. But even this little bit of faith looks to Christ for salvation. Christ was not a fisherman. But some of the apostles were highly experienced fishermen. They did not place their hopes for deliverance in their skills with boating and fishing. But in Jesus, they knew deep down that only Jesus could save them. So we have your proof that true Christians can be weak and in need of much growth in Christian knowledge and faith. In addition, their answer reveals impatience and a lack of biblical analysis. Now, I realize this sort of came up quickly, but it does reveal impatience. The storm came quickly, and they reacted without wisdom or a careful consideration of how to speak to Jesus. There was unbelief in that they were not focused on the power, the love, the sovereignty of Jesus, and they acted as though their doom was certain, when in reality, Jesus controlled the weather. He's God. He controls the weather. And there was also a distrust. They speak as if they doubted the love, care, and deep concern of the Savior for them and their safety. What a weak and pitiful faith, given their knowledge of the Redeemer, given what they had seen, all the miracles they'd witnessed. They had witnessed amazing miracle after miracle. They had witnessed a love and kindness never witnessed before or since. They had seen a spirit of grace and mercy unsurpassed in all history. If there was ever a man who deserved our faith and a full, bold trust, it is Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. The more you learn of him, the more you know him, the more you should trust him, the more you should rely on him, the more you should worship him. The loving bridegroom, who is God of very God, was among them. Yet these amazing truths were forgotten in the present crisis. And there's a very, the other miracle where, of course, they're, they're in a storm, stormy waters, and Peter walks out to them. Well, they're in a boat, and Christ is walking on the water toward the boat, and Peter is walking toward Christ. And when Peter takes his eyes off Christ, starts looking at the water, he starts to sink. It is when the whirlwind comes and the waves are high that our faith is tested. Fear in the present must never be allowed to take our eyes off of Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. We must learn Christ and his salvation so comprehensively and we must meditate on his person and work so extensively that when the waves of persecution or calamity come crashing upon us, we immediately trust and re rely on him instead of doubting him. So you want to learn everything you can about Christ. You should be reading the Gospels a lot. They're amazing. Many a professing Christian appears solid and content when things are going great. Everything's going good. When the sun is shining and the weather is fair, their faith looks quite strong. They therefore conclude that they are 
fully trusting in Christ. But when persecution or tribulation or hardships come, they fall apart. Their strong confidence vanishes. Their peace and hope dissipates. Many professing Christians who do not study and carefully meditate upon Jesus Christ and go through life with a complacent spirit are weighed in the balance and found wanting when it comes to faith. When troubles come, when they are sorely tested, fear, distress, anxiety, and doubts overwhelm them. Meditate on this wonderful section of Scripture. Don't let this happen to you. Christ put this here for you to learn, to not do what they did. The more you know, and the more you trust what you know, this will be your armor when the fiery darts of Satan come upon you. Learn everything you can about Jesus Christ. Meditate on how wonderful he is. Meditate on how great he is. Fully God, fully man in one person, without sin. The perfect Savior, all-powerful. Abraham, Job, Moses, Samson, David, and Peter, many others had great trials and tribulations. Some of them, uh, some of their own making because of sin. But they came through it because of their faith in God and their trust in his word. Is your faith weak and feeble? Remember, Christ is strong and infinite in power. Focus your mind on who he is, for he deserves your love and your confidence and your service and your worship. He should be everything to you. You are not saved because you are strong or perfect or mighty. You are saved solely because of who Christ is and what he has done on your behalf. If your faith is weak, then get to know Christ more and more and more. Study, meditate, memorize, pray, learn Christ, look to Christ, exalt Christ. And then Roman numeral number three, Christ's miraculous deliverance. After our Lord is awakened from his sleep, quite suddenly, by the frightened apostles, he takes action immediately. He stands up and he speaks to the howling wind and the raging sea as if they were animate creatures. This is a Hebraistic way of speaking, a very poetic way. Mark 4.39 says, Then he arose and rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace! And the word literally means hush, be quiet. Be still literally means be silent. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And here all the accounts are in perfect harmony. In Matthew 8.26, Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the sea. In Luke 8.24, he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water. In Mark, he orders the wind to be quiet. And he tells the sea to be silent. Excuse me, he rebukes the wind and he tells the sea to be silent. 
He speaks to the raging storm of this as if it was an unruly child. Knock it off. Quiet. And immediately, perfect stillness. Almost the same words are used in the casting out of the demon in Mark 125. Be quiet and come out of him. The miracle is astounding, for it shows that Jesus in his person has authority over the very elements of creation. When the prophet Jonah is awakened during a severe storm by the panicked crew, he prays to God for deliverance. When Paul is in a sim similar situation, he receives a word from God, and he tells the crew that they, what they must do, they must do so-and-so to survive. In other words, you can't be throwing the prisoners overboard. But Jesus simply stands up and says, be quiet, shut up. Storm over. Boom, it's over. And if you can find it, there's footage of an incredibly bad storm on the Sea of Galilee. And, I mean, the waves are just incredible. This is a poetic progression. A prog it's called a, a poetic progressive parallelism. <clears throat> Our Lord addresses the wind and the sea separately. The wind is rebuked. The sea is commanded, hush, be still. The verb tenses, aorist, if you want to know, indicate an immediate result. Suddenly, in a split second, the wind stopped. The sea became totally calm and smooth like a mirror. That's amazing. In Genesis, God spoke and the universe came into being. Jesus spoke and the created elements immediately obeyed his will. This is an amazing miracle. No one could do such a thing except God himself. Our precious Savior is both fully man and fully God. John 1, 1-3. In the beginning was the Word the Logos, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. That's Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, the Word. And without Him, nothing was made that was made. And I forgot to write the passage down from Colossians. It's in first chapter of Colossians, I believe, where it says that Christ controls the very elements. He not only created the universe, but he has complete, absolute providence. He controls the atoms. He controls everything. If a comet hits Saturn, Christ had control of that. If you do not believe that Jesus is really and truly God in every way, then you are not a Christian, and you cannot be saved. Judaism, Islam, Unitarianism, all the cults deny the divinity of Christ, and thus not only speak blasphemy against the divine creator, but also teach a completely false, perverted concept of salvation. Only a Savior who's fully God can offer a sacrifice of infinite value. If he was just like Jehovah's Witnesses, he's the first created angel, he's a big angel. Or uh, Unitarians and stuff, he's just, a, he's just a great prophet, you know, he's just a man. Then he couldn't achieve salvation, as the Bible teaches. These things are all interconnected. He's divine, he's God. Only one who is truly God can raise our hearts from the dead. Open our blind eyes. Only God can turn us from our own sin and idolatry to the true and living God. We worship and adore Jesus Christ as God because he is God. 
and he deserves our worth at Bush due to his person, but also his work of salvation on our behalf. Revelation 5, 13 to 14. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that is in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. One day all creation will acknowledge that Jesus is God, the Lord, Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow. You either bow now and worship him, you adore him, you believe in him as your Savior and your Lord, or you're going to bow at the final judgment in terror right before you're cast into the lake of fire. Yes, this is our Jesus. He controls the very creation. With Christ, nothing is impossible. The powerful demons cowered in fear before him. <clears throat> he sustains and controls all the atoms and elements of the whole universe. Now, given this truth, which is emphasized and presented very clearly in Scripture, should not our faith in him as Lord and Savior be strong? Do you have doubts? Why? Why do you have doubts? Look at who Jesus is. There's no reason to doubt. Believing in Christ is the most rational thing you could do. He is all-powerful to save. And every single person that he wants to save, he most certainly does save. Systems of, the of theology such as Roman Catholicism or semi-Pelagianism or Arminianism not only teach a false doctrine of salvation, but also a false doctrine of Jesus Christ and God. Jesus said, John 6.37, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. John 10.27-30, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, I and the Father are one. Now, the Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying. For when he said these kind of things, he said, before Abraham I was, I and the Father are one. What did they do? They picked up stones. They wanted to kill him. They thought he was a blasphemer because they didn't believe he was God. But he was God. This teaching must be kept in the forefront of our thinking. It must be a constant object of our faith. For the Christian life, will involve storms. It will involve waves and winds that trouble the soul. When waves look as though they're going to crash down upon us, hard, we must look upon Christ as our divine human mediator, as our caring, loving high priest, and advocate with the Father. This idea that the Christian life is easy. Well, look at Abraham's life. Look at Moses' life. Look at Jacob's life. Look at Isaac's life. There is a great error being propagated today among popular megachurch preachers. That being a Christian and having faith means the end of trials, tribulations, and sufferings. We are told that if we have the right kind of faith, coupled with positive thinking, then life will be easy, prosperous, and free of cares. But such thinking is radically unscriptural. 
Jesus told his disciples that they would be hated and persecuted for their faith. Paul said, 2 Timothy 3.12, All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Godly men, such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and the prophets and the apostles, endured trials, pains, heartaches, tribulations. Believers are not free from economic calamities, natural disasters, large wars, sicknesses, diseases, out-of-control civil rulers, and death. Christ never taught that being a Christian was a bed of roses. Now, there is prosperity connected to obeying the law of God and following biblical principles. That's true. But the book of Job is there to make us see that, yes, bad things happen to good people. And God is in control of that, and he lets it happen. And it's for our own good in the long run. But you have to have faith to endure it. He has given us everything necessary for faith and godliness. And has taught us very clearly that faith in him, his work, and his word is the way to endure trials and, per and persevere during the storms of life. Beloved, we should expect trials and prepare ourselves for them. The Christian life is not free from troubles and pain. The important thing is to have faith to endure them and come out of the other side stronger than before. I know Christians that have died of cancer and had horrible, painful deaths. I know Christians that have been abandoned by husbands and wives who committed adultery and abandoned them. Ones that had small children and they were abandoned. What do you do? In those situations, you look to Christ and you move forward in the faith. Life is not a bed of roses. The trials never happen without God's plan. And they should benefit us spiritually in the long run if we focus our attention on Christ and we trust in Him. If you have faith in Christ, then learn to trust Him during the big storms. Rest assured that Jesus does not make mistakes. The winds may buffet you. The waves may crash upon you. But fear not. Jesus is testing your faith to strengthen you and sanctify you. Psalm 107, 4-9 says this, They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hunger and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. And he led them forth by the right way that they may go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men, for he satisfies the longing soul and he fills the hungry soul with goodness. Roman numeral number four. That was the miracle. Now here's Christ's rebuke. Number four. After the storms and waves are completely silenced, Jesus corrects the error of the apostles who should have had faith instead of fear. In verse 40 we read, but, they said to him, but he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now given what the apostles had said in their panic, accusing Jesus of indifference or hard-heartedness, this rebuke is actually very gentle and compassionate. He focuses directly on what the apostles needed for their edification. Christ sees their weakness and addresses it. He does not rebuke them in, their, in his anger, but he corrects them as little children. 
that such a sudden, violent, unexpected storm could cause some fear is reasonable and expected. What was wrong was allowing that fear to get out of control instead of trusting in the saving power of Christ. The way Jesus dealt with the disciples who were slow to learn and weak in the faith deserves our close attention. There was never a more forbearing teacher than Jesus. The disciples had been taught so well and had seen so many amazing miracles. They'd seen so much that their slowness in comprehending and learning is somewhat astounding. On one occasion, Peter attempted to convince the Savior not to go to the cross in Matthew 16.22. And remember, he rebuked him, get behind me, Satan. The apostles had some faith, but at this time it was weak and they needed to make, be made aware of this weakness. The lesson here is that knowledge and understanding must be accompanied by true belief. It is not enough to know about Jesus and what he has done. One must trust Jesus for salvation from sin and for help during life's crisis. You know, we're all going to get old and die. It's not a lot of fun. Believe me. You know, unless you're perfectly healthy and you drop dead of a heart attack in five seconds, that's not too bad. But a lot of people die slowly and painfully. Their fear in the face of the great storm exposed their lack of faith. In the parable of the sower, tribulation and persecution expose a worthless counterfeit faith. And many people abandon Christ and go back to the world in the face of tribulations and heartaches. Many years ago, I had a guy, a young guy who I had witnessed to, became a professing Christian. He joined the church, he was very dedicated. And his girlfriend committed suicide. Because I don't think she was a Christian. Well, obviously she wasn't a Christian. But what did he do? How could God let this happen? He blamed it on God. As if it was God's fault that she did something so evil and stupid. It wasn't God's fault. Like the panicked disciples, they came to a wrong conclusion about these problems. People blame God or Christ and conclude that there is no point in being a Christian. People accuse Christ of not caring and not helping and they apostatize. People do the exact opposite of what they should do and what the Bible teaches them to do. When the storms come, this is the time to trust in Christ even more. To pray even more, to study even more, to meditate and look at those psalms. Get the scriptures out and focus on Christ. And look to his saving power. And look to him as alive, as all-powerful, as our faithful, loving high priest. Believe and do not doubt. Whatever happens is part of God's sovereign plan. Somehow, it is for your own good. You may not recognize it. Sometimes you don't recognize it to many years later. <clears throat> but you must believe it is because God says it is. And one of the best examples of this, of course, is uh, Joseph, uh, you know, being taken away and Jacob thinking his son's lost forever. And uh, God saves them through, through him. 
down the road. Here's Romans 8, 28 to 39. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, those he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who has not spared his own Son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not... We, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore also risen, who is ever at the right hand of God and also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecutions or famine, nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers <coughs> nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Beloved, let us learn to think like Christ and correct others like Christ. We all fail in many things. We must be patient. We must exhibit forbearance, kindness, and a firm but gentle spirit. When Christians act like unloving, uncompassionate jerks, they do not help. And they do that all the time. In addition, the test of the quality and deepness of our faith comes in the stormy, difficult times. Be ready to deal with them with a proper Christian mindset and a strong, persevering faith. And then we have one more point here. Very short. The disciples' response to the miracle, Roman numeral 5. This section concludes with an account of the apostles' reaction. Verse 41. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? The apostles had a great fear, exceeding fear. But this was no longer the fear of the storm that was now silent, but rather the reverential fear and awe of Jesus Christ. They understood immediately the significance of this display of power. This is no ordinary rabbi. This is no ordinary prophet. This is God come down to earth. He had shown then that one infinitely greater than Jonah was here in their presence. Their response clearly indicates that their great awe and reverential fear came from the realization that this teacher was God. Jesus had not just rebuked them for their lack of faith, but also had displayed his power to strengthen their faith. Although it there are times when it looks as though Jesus is sleeping. While we are suffering and anxious, do not forget the Savior's infinite love and power that is exercised on your behalf. 
persevere. Learn Jesus more and more. We should never doubt because we have no reason to doubt. When the disciples feared the winds and the great waves, it was because their reverential fear of Christ needed to increase. After seeing Jesus control the storm with only a few spoken words, their fear of Christ greatly increased. And so did their faith in him. The great lesson here is that what we think and believe about Jesus Christ is the key to dealing with and enduring life's obstacles and problems. Christ is our sanctification. He's our focus. We need to fear Christ and his power, grace, and mercy much, much more than trials and tribulations. What would Jesus do? Was he, would he panic? No. He would trust. If you put Christ first in all things, everything will work out. When the Lord saved Jonah and the seamen from the raging storm. This is Jonah 1.16. Then the men feared the Lord, and the word there is Yahweh. The men feared Yahweh exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh. And they took vows. They looked to the Christ to come. And they honored him through sacrifice. They revered him, and they committed themselves to him by a covenant. What a great response to a miracle. Beloved, what do you think about Christ? Is your faith weak? Well, learn more about Christ and trust him, as he really is, and your faith will grow. The more you know him, the more you learn of him, the more you will reverence, love, and trust him. So that's the key to the story. But what an amazing story. And it's absolutely true. It happened. These atheists on YouTube and stuff, they're such ignorant fools and say such stupid things. I wish somebody like Greg Bonson was there to rebuke them. Unfortunately, the evangelicals who talk to these people are very weak in, in knowledge. But what a blessed story. Uh, Let's really focus on Christ. Let us pray. Th thank you, Lord, for this. Uh, you recorded this. For our edification. We confess, Lord, we have not trusted Christ as we should. We fall short. Increase our faith in him. Increase our love in him. Increase our dedication and service toward him. We bow the knee to you, Christ, because you are Lord. You are the only Savior. You are our only hope. We confess we are not worthy to even look up to heaven. But in you, we are forgiven. And your imputed righteousness is a gift to us. So we worship you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.